wonder if you've seen on television the six-part BBC series titled ERI. Provides a glimpse of the daily work in three surgical units in the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary just down the road. And in one of the programs, there was a remarkable story uh, involving a gentleman whom you might know. The Reverend Douglas White from Dunfermline required a heart valve repair operation. And just to make things a little interesting, he was due for surgery only three weeks before his daughter's wedding. Plenty of tension, as you can imagine. Would the operation be successful? Would his heart trouble be assuaged? Well, the operation was a success, and his recovery was so swift that the Reverend White not only made it to his daughter's wedding, he actually conducted it. You see, in the days in which we live, heart trouble is often treatable. However, there is another kind of heart trouble which is most common and which is not so easy to treat. For it is not so much physical as emotional. There is no hospital that you can check into. There is no operation or procedure you can have which can cure it. But it is real. Indeed, we have a whole vocabulary for it. We talk about heartache and heartbreak and losing heart. And whether you are young or old, whether you are fit or failing, whether you are Christian or not yet a Christian, you experience it. And the good news is that there is someone who can treat troubled hearts. And that someone is the same Lord Jesus who on the night when he was betrayed said to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. If your heart is discouraged tonight, if your heart is unbelieving tonight and in turmoil, Jesus is the physician and Jesus is the cure. And I want you to consider with me three things that Jesus offers to troubled hearts. He offers reassurance. He calls for redirection. And he engenders reliance upon him. So first of all, Jesus brings reassurance. Clearly the disciples on this night of nights are troubled in the sense that they are gripped with fear and anxiety. Later in this chapter, in verse 27, Jesus needs to echo the command that he gives in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. So why their fear? Why their anxiety at this point in the story? What was it that caused such trepidation and turmoil within them? Well, for one thing, surely, the fear of departure. Only a few verses earlier, Jesus has warned them, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me. And where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is leaving. The disciples are fearful. And at any moment, 
the betrayer who has only but left their presence may return. The predictions about Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' suffering and Jesus' death may soon come true. And we can only imagine how the disciples felt. Here is their Lord, the one in whom they have put their hopes, the one who they revere and love, who they have spent three years with constantly, day and night. And he's leaving. And yet there is also the fear of failure too. As we learned this morning, what immediately precedes this section is Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. As Peter pledges to never leave his Lord, even to die with Jesus. But the promise of Jesus is that Peter will deny him even that very night. Again, we can only conjecture the impact of this upon the disciples. Oh, the cogs must have been turning in their minds. Well, if Peter, the most courageous of us disciples, will deny the Lord, then what hope for us? And so it is in view of Jesus' departure and in view of the disciples' failure that their hearts are sore. Now let's pause for just a moment. Because I wonder tonight whether you have a sore heart. I wonder if you have a heart that is gripped by fear and anxiety. No, it won't be for the same reason, of course, as the disciples. Their experience was peculiar to this night alone. And yet all too frequently we hurt. And we fear. And our heart is troubled. Perhaps for us it's the pain of separation. In bereavement. Maybe the heartache of a long-term illness. Could be the shock of a job loss. Or the fear of one. The pain of family problems. Marriage strain. Perhaps even the crippling doubt which Christians can experience from time to time. Let me ask you, what is our assurance at those times and in those situations? Well, friends, it is this. The command of Jesus and the basis for his command. His command is, in verse 1, trust in God, trust also in me. But our assurance for obeying him is found in the two verses which follow. First of all, Jesus will go and prepare a place for us. In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. The father's house is just another way of saying heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, listen, don't be afraid that I'm leaving. The reason I'm going to the cross and to the tomb and to the Mount of Ascension is to secure your future. In my going, your place is secured. See, actually, this is quite a subtle point to grasp. Jesus is not suggesting that he must go to heaven to do some spring cleaning, as it were. As if heaven needs an advance party to warm the house or open the curtains. The stress is upon the fact that it is Jesus going which prepares the place. You see, if Jesus does not go to the cross, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then your place and my place in heaven is not secured. 
to suppose for a moment that Jesus at this point in his ministry decided that he wasn't going to the cross. He was going to stick around. We would probably have an even more remarkable body of teaching. An even more extraordinary account of his miracles. But there would be no place for you or I in heaven. No forgiveness. Because it's only through the cross that our place is reserved. And so I wonder this evening, and I ask you plainly, are you assured of your place? See, heaven, according to Jesus, is a real place. Heaven is not some ethereal idea, people floating around on clouds and playing harps. Heaven is fact, not fiction. It is truth, not lie. And therefore, if it were possible tonight for me to check the bookings, the reservations for the Father's house in heaven for that future day, would your name be there? Because you have accepted the down payment that Jesus made for you on the cross. If not, why not? If so, and you're a Christian, this is a wonderful reassurance in troubled times. Jesus has gone to prepare a place, and therefore Jesus will come back and take us there. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I have a two and a half year old son named Glenn, and Glenn does not really like the idea or understand the idea of absence. Uh, sometimes when I, I leave, he thinks I'm never coming back. And on some occasions when we're going for a family journey, uh, I'll leave Glenn in the house with his mum and go down to the car to pack things. Of course, I always return. Because the reason that I go is to prepare the place for him. To prepare for the journey. And that's precisely what Jesus promises. He has gone into heaven, but he will not stay there indefinitely. Jesus will return with the goal that we may be where he is. Isn't that a great little phrase? Don't you know what the best thing about heaven is? It's not the place. I'm sure the place will be rather fine. I don't think we'll be complaining about the rooms or the quality of the towels. But the best thing in heaven is not the place. It is the person who inhabits the place. And what an assurance it is in troubled times, in hard times, that nothing can separate us from the Savior and from his love. So that if you were a Christian, you can say, I may lose my health. I may lose my job. I may give up my home. I may even lose loved ones. But I cannot lose my place in heaven with Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this evening, is that your assurance? Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher in the 18th century, once said this about heaven. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives and children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. The enjoyment of God is the substance. These are the scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but the streams. God is the fountain. 
These are but the drops. But God is the ocean. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you reassured by that this evening if you are a Christian? But there's a second help for the troubled heart. Not only reassurance, but secondly, redirection. Uh, Just last uh, weekend, I had the privilege of going along with some of our international friends to their weekend away. Uh, It was just by the bonnie, bonnie banks of Loch Lomond and also fairly remote. Uh, in actual fact, my wife won't like me telling you this, but we struggled to get there with navigation a little bit. And when we were sitting uh, at the table that evening, I was informed by one gentleman about satellite navigation. Uh, he had simply typed in the destination, and he said that despite the fact it was foggy and getting dark, and that the roads were unfamiliar, it had kept him on course. He said, even if I'd taken a wrong turn, this was a bit that really sickened me. (laughs) He said, even if I had taken a wrong turn, it would have redirected me to the right location. But listen, the wonderful thing for the Christian is, for the believer is, that in a much more profound way, in our times of confusion and uncertainty, Jesus redirects us. He points us back to God. See, here are the disciples in this time of trouble, and they are not only fearful, but they have lost their spiritual bearings. Even when Jesus claims in verse 4 that the disciples know the way to the place where he is going, they can't imagine it so. Lord, we don't know where you're going, says Thomas, so how can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's a staggering claim. Jesus brings people to the Father. He says, I am the one, the only one, who can guide you to God. I am the navigator that leads you to heaven. And, of course, this suggestion is scorned today. People say, well, in a multi-faith, pluralistic society, who can believe that? It's unworkable. As one writer helpfully summarizes it, Jesus does not merely point to the way, he is the way. Jesus does not just teach the truth, he is the truth. He does not represent one avenue to life, he is the life. In a word, the human quest for God ends with Jesus. And yet maybe tonight you say, well listen, there's no such thing as an absolute truth. Truth claims are arrogant. But listen, if you're making that claim, you're making an absolute claim. You cannot be absolutely relative. And moreover, if I tell you that driving off a cliff is a bad idea, am I arrogant? And therefore, I simply must tell you that Jesus is the way, the only way. And he is the way because he is the truth and because he is the life. You see, if Jesus embodies God's truth, then only Jesus can be trusted when he says he is the way. And if Jesus is the life giver, then he truly is the one who can help us to know the living God. That's why in the Bible, again and again, Jesus is shown as the exclusive way to the Father. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to men by which we must 
be saved. Therefore, are you trusting in the person of Jesus alone for salvation? Jesus alone brings people to the Father. And Jesus alone brings the Father to people. See, this is just a thrilling thought. See, Philip in verse 8 isn't terribly impressed with what Jesus has said in verse 6. We might think this would be impressive. Jesus is the only way to the Father. But you see, for Philip, this is interesting, but it's not immediate. This is nice, but it's just not now. And Philip says, Jesus, I really can't wait. Just give us a preview right here, right now. Let us see the Father, what he is really like. You know, sometimes we say similar things, don't we? At difficult times. A bit of heaven now, Lord, please. Like Moses of old, we say, show us your glory, Lord. But Jesus responds to us by saying, listen, you're missing the point. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I have a brother, uh, his name is Graham, and he looks awfully like me. Uh, Not only does he look like me, but he's similar in his mannerisms, and he sounds a bit like me. And on many occasions throughout my life, people have come up to me and either thought I was my brother, or just knew that I was Graham's brother. You see, we were so similar. And Jesus says, that's like how it is with me and the Father. When you see me, you get a picture of what the Father is like. So that when you hear me, you hear the Father's words. For the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father who is in me who is doing his work. So that when you see my works, you see the Father's works. Believe me when I say I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles, the works themselves. Now, what does this mean for us in practice? What's the application of this for the Christian? Well, what this means is that during our time of trouble, when we feel like we have lost our bearings, our response must be to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because often the first thing we do in a time of turmoil is take our eyes off God, off the Father, off Christ. And our discouragement quickly moves into dire straits. But if we look to Jesus, if we feed on the Gospels, we see Jesus act graciously and compassionately and justly. We gain a glimpse of what God the Father is like and we are encouraged. We're given focus. No doubt this is why the author of the Hebrews was keen to stress the need to focus on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Focus not on the problem and the crisis, but on the person of Christ. That's redirection in our troubled times. And when that happens, it leads troubled hearts, thirdly and finally, to reliance. 
You see, that is always God's goal in this process of us going through hardship and difficulty. See, it's interesting. When our hearts are troubled, there are different dimensions to the turmoil. One aspect is fear. Another aspect is confusion. But a third aspect is faithlessness. See, often in our trouble, we lose confidence in God and in Christ. And friends, the ultimate challenge of this passage is that we choose trust in Jesus rather than dwelling on our troubles. We choose trust over trouble and in trouble. Remember back in verse 1, this was Jesus' command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Why? How? Trust in God. Trust also in me. And now in verses 12 to 14, Jesus shows more fully how this reliance is worked out. See, faith is never an abstract thing. A reliance on Jesus is demonstrated by our partnership with Jesus in prayer. We find this remarkable promise in verses 12 to 14. On the one hand, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, and he will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. Now this is a difficult verse to interpret. The context, of course, is that Jesus has been speaking about miracles. Verse 11. And therefore our question is, what are the greater things which the apostles will do that will somehow surpass the miracles of Jesus? See, it's not made immediately clear. Our first thought might be to think that what Jesus is speaking about is simply more miracles. Jesus has done great miracles. His disciples will then do even greater miracles. However, the problem with that view is that in the book of Acts, that's simply not really what we see. The apostles did, of course, perform miracles. But greater miracles than Jesus? No. And it's not surprising, given that Jesus raised the dead, he walked on water, and he fed 5,000 with a few loaves and fish. But if it's not miracles that are mainly in view, then what are the greater things? Well, a number of people have suggested an explanation which has links in this verse and in the wider context of John's gospel. And the first thing we should notice is the end of the verse, that Jesus has this little phrase, key statement, because I will go to the Father. He says, the reason you will do greater things is because I will go. So there's something significant, therefore, about the timing of this. These greater things will occur after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But if we turn to John chapter 6 as well, we find something interesting there. Because there's a similar discussion about miracles in the middle of the passage. And Jesus says something very interesting. He explains the work of God, the same word, is this. To believe... In the one he has sent. The work of God that Jesus is talking about in John's gospel is faith. And therefore the greater things then possibly involves large numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the apostles 
after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, even Jesus would not have as great a response to his preaching as the apostles did. Remember, Peter, for example, saw 3,000 people come to faith through one sermon. And it's a remarkable promise to these disciples at this time. These failing disciples, these fearful disciples, they will do mighty things. But Jesus reminds them that they cannot do it without him. He will do greater things than these. But then Jesus adds, I will do it. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I, I will do it. The power you see comes through prayer and the person of Jesus. Conversion is God's business. And yet it's through this partnership in prayer that we can ask great things knowing that Jesus will answer. We can bring our troubles and our concerns to him knowing that God will answer in accordance with his will. It's not a blank check, of course. This isn't a name it, claim it formula. No such prayers are offered, you notice, in the name of Jesus, according to his character and his desire, and to the end of, glorify, the end of glorifying God. But subject to these conditions, Jesus answers our prayers. So let me ask this. What things are you praying in regard to your difficult situation? What petitions are you offering for the things that are bothering you and weighing you down? That friend who is not a Christian. That sin that you're struggling with in your life. That lack of assurance. Prayer should be our first resort in times of trouble. Now we're almost finished. As we come to conclude, here are some questions that I want us to consider as we leave here tonight. Are you fearful or reassured by Christ? Are you lost or focused on Christ? And are you faithless or reliant on Christ? It may be that you came in tonight on the first half of that. And you might go out tonight on the latter half of that. You know, in physical terms, anyone can have heart problems. You may remember last year, the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, had some minor treatment to keep his heart ticking in time. But you know, it doesn't matter either on an emotional level who you are. Heart trouble happens. But you know, it may be tonight that the reason for your heart trouble is mainly because you are not a Christian. You have no eternal security and your sins are cumbering you down like a heavy weight. And if that is the case, then you need to turn to Jesus and you need to trust in him for the first time in your life tonight. Only he can bring you to the Father, to God. And yet, Christians can have heart trouble too. Let's be honest about this, because sometimes we're not very open about it. 
from the senior pastor to the oldest and most mature Christian in the church to the youngest babe in Christ. It happens. The question is, are you receiving treatment from the Savior this evening? That reassurance, that redirection, so that you might rely more fully on Him. Let us pray together.